All right. Um, I'm, as I said, I'm Pastor Bell. I'd like to start the message with a, a very brief survey where only you are going to see your results. Um, at the end of the message or towards the end of the message, we'll actually come back to it so that you can, can kind of review your results of your survey with God. All right. You were given a three by five card when you came in. Um, and anybody, anybody did not get the three by five card? Raise your hand and people will come. Oh, wow. Here come the three by five cards. <laughs> That's okay. I'll build it up a little bit while you um, hand out. So keep your hands up. Um, if you don't have a pen, wow, <laughs> this whole side. <laughs> if you don't have a pen, then borrow one from, I mean, Gen Z's, they say you guys don't carry pens. Um, Millennials who are overly responsible carry pens, so if you don't have one, get a millennial and get one of theirs, or get theirs. Um, evidently, my generation carries like three pens with them, and I'm pretty sure if I look in my briefcase that I'll find at least three pens. All right. So I, I actually thought of making a word map of our, of our results, but then I realized this really is only between you and God. So you're the only one that's going to see the results, which means there's just going to be three questions. You can answer one word if you want, or you can answer a little bit more. If you don't want to do it on the 3 by 5 card, you could do a memo to yourself or an email to yourself, whatever you would like to do. And there are just these three questions. I'll be there, right there. It's a decent magnet. I like that. All right, just the three questions. Um, how does God feel about you right now? The second one, how do you feel about God right now? And the third one, then I'll give you like, you know, 60 seconds here. On a scale of one to 10, 10 the highest, how central is grace to your daily life? You know, not your, your, you know, it was really important to you five years ago, but to your daily life, day in, day out, how central is grace to your daily life? I'll give you about 60 seconds here to reflect on those and jot down some answers. All right, just so you know, each of the sermons in these three, each, each of these three messages on the theme of grace, um, we're going to start with a three by five card survey. So, um, so for, th for you to reflect on some things and then return back to them and, um, and talk to God about them. Many of you know that Marla and I grew up in Christian families. Our families were far, 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 far from perfect. But both our families really did raise us to love and follow Jesus. We both went to Wheaton College, which at the time was known as um, the Harvard of Christian Colleges. 
Um, after college, I went to graduate school, and um, actually, in, in college, it's really weird, but in college, I was on the campus um, ministry team. We had 300 college students when I was in college in our ministry that nine of us who didn't know what we were doing tried to do. But anyway, after, after I graduated from college, I went to grad school, and while at grad school, I became a youth pastor of a um, church in Lincoln, Nebraska, Baptist church, and, um, and I had like 40 or 50 you know, high school students and 20 or 30, whatever, um, junior high students. Um, after we then got married, we went to seminary, and after seminary, I was the international student advisor at Eastern Mennonite University, and then after that, we went to Central America, and I pastored Union Church in Tegucigalpa, Honduras, and then um, the um, Crossroads Bible Church in Panama City, right next to the Panama Canal. All of this to say, Marla and I grew up committed to love and serve Jesus, and committed to make the world a better place in Jesus' name. But it wasn't until our 30s, after attending a Christian college, after um, going to seminary, after working in a Christian university, after pastoring for at least seven years, it wasn't until our 30s that we saw modeled for us one of the most liberating truths of the Christian life. We were raised to love Jesus, to try harder and harder to love Jesus better and better, and to try harder and harder to build up the church more and more as the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. What we were not trained in, what we had not seen modeled, what we had not grasped was the glorious grace of God. We had good theology. We knew that we were saved by grace and it was not of ourselves so that no one can boast. We knew that, but it wasn't until we were pastoring in our church in Panama that we saw for the first time a truly grace-saturated life. We'd seen devoted Christian lives. We'd seen contemplative Christian lives. We'd seen missional spiritual lives. And we'd seen a lot of rules-based and performance-based Christianity. But neither of us had seen modeled a grace-saturated life. So it was one couple in our church in Panama. Cleve was a Department of Defense um, school teacher. Bonnie was um, a stay-at-home mom. Cleve didn't use the word grace all that often. He usually used the word honor. But when Cleve spoke of how one of our highest callings in life was to always honor one another, he meant that we were called to find and honor what is best in each other all the time and he meant that we were called to give space and give grace to each other when we were not our best. Grace to everyone in his life was Cleve's first commitment and the greatest, greatest expression of his love. His wife Bonnie was, really became like a second mom to Marla. Marla's mother was a pastor's kid who grew up in a very, very strict rule-based German Methodist family. So Marla grew up always being reminded that people were watching and people were judging. And she had to always look right and be right so she would not embarrass her parents or her grandparents. Marla actually came to view God as a disappointed disciplinarian father. 
who was way better if he was a long ways away from you because when he was too close, he was judging and harsh. Um, so, Marla tells a story, and where are you, Marla? There you are. Okay. Whoever's sitting next to her, you can see whether this happens when I tell the story, all right? Um, Martha tells the story, and when she tells it to this day, she still tears up. And I had her tell it this last week, and she teared up sitting in our living room. Um, find my notes. Bonnie for Marla, and for me as I got to, to watch her, she lived one of the most grace-saturated, unconditional loving and accepting life of anybody we had ever seen. And so, um, so Bonnie's daughter was getting married. I was officiating. And our daughter, Christine, at that point was eight or nine years old. And Christine was supposed to give out the wedding favors at the reception at the officer's club where the reception was going to be. But during the wedding ceremony at church, Christine started to feel sick and upset to her stomach. And, um, and after she told Ma Marla, and, and they got to the officer's club, and she was feeling so sick, Marla said, you know, let's go into the side room, and you can lay down, you know, lay down over here in this corner. And, um, and she kind of spent some time, then Marla went to tell Bonnie that, that Christine wasn't going to be able to give the, the wedding favors um, at the reception. And Marla was dreading telling Bonnie this, because Marla was thinking of how mortifying it was that she brought a sick child to a wedding reception and she was letting down a very good friend because her daughter was sick. So she went to find Bonnie and tell her the story and when Marla told Bonnie that teen was sick, Bonnie asked, where is she? And instead of frowning and expressing disappointment, Bonnie said, take me to her. And Marla recounts how Bonnie left her own daughter's wedding reception to find and make Christine the most important person in her life in that moment. They found Christine under a table curled up in a side room um, next to the reception. And Marla says that Bonnie, in all of her finery as a mother of the bride, Bonnie actually got down on her hands and knees, crawled under the table, and sweetly talked to Christine and rubbed her back and, um, and rubbed her brow. And in that moment, Marla saw a whole new way of grace opening up to her. Marla had always known this mildly and sometimes harshly judging Christianity, judging from others and even judging herself. But in that moment, as tears came to her eyes, Marla saw a vision of a Christianity that put grace first and that made life unbelievably free of self-recrimination, free of worry about what other people might think, free of worry about what her mother would think, and free of worry of what God might think. In that moment, Marla says that she got a vision of a grace-saturated Christian life. Think about it just for a moment. Instead of constantly feeling watched 
and evaluated and judged, instead of constantly feeling like you don't measure up, instead of constantly comparing ourselves to others, instead of constantly evaluating and judging others, what would it be like to live grace-saturated daily lives? Instead of never being quite good enough, what if God's grace really was good enough? Instead of excellence, what if it was good enough that we were humble and faithful and true? So there's a pizza shop in Malden, out by where we live, and they have written on their box, their pizza box, it says, we are only as good as the last pizza we made. When it comes to my pizza restaurant, that's probably okay. But when it comes to the rest of my relationships, that is soul crucifying. If we're only as good as our last interaction with each other, if we can be tossed to the curb because we disappointed each other or failed each other, then we can never ever let our guard down. We can never stop striving. We can never stop judging and being judged. We can never rest in who we are because in the end it might actually be true that we really truly are not good enough after all. In grace-deprived lives and in a grace-deprived Christianity, none of us is ever truly safe. Imagine the freedom of living grace-saturated lives. So in these next three messages, we're going to focus on the incredible grace of God. This week, we're going to talk about how, how grace-saturated our God is. Next week, we're going to talk about receiving that grace into our souls so that it shapes us. And then the last week, we're going to talk about stewarding that grace among one another. We start today exploring the God of grace because the only way that I can imagine grace-saturated lives, the only way I can imagine us getting there is to see how grace-saturated is our God. It has been said that grace separates true Christianity from all other religions. One theologian said it this way. He said, no other system of religious thought, past or present, none. No other system of religious thought past or present, contains an emphasis on divine grace comparable to that of the Bible. The grace of God in the Old Testament is represented by a Hebrew word um, that is chesed, and it's, it refers to one of the most important theological truths of the, new, of the Old Testament. The Hebrew word chesed means unfailing love, loving kindness, loyalty, allegiance, mercy, dependability, and, and God's, it's used almost 200 times in the Old Testament to refer to God's allegiance and steadfast love towards us, God's loyalty to us when we do not deserve it. Over and over again in the Old Testament, we're encouraged in, in the Psalms, many, many of the Psalms, we're encouraged to praise God for his loyalty towards us, his steadfast love and mercy, because that is his overwhelming attitude towards us. And so just listen to a few, um, a few scriptures. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, I hope you know it. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
His mercies never come to an end. And I like this. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Psalm 89 says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Listen to how saturated God is with grace. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Psalm 107, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, is the song. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Whom he has redeemed from trouble. Whoever is wise, the end of Psalm 107, whoever is wise, let them attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. A couple others. Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. And then Psalm 136 is actually an antiphonal hymn, and over 25 times the congregation is supposed to respond with and when they hear, give thanks to the Lord, they're supposed to say, his steadfast love endures forever. Our God in heaven is a grace-saturated God towards you. Not just when you got saved, but every morning, God has a grace that he wants to offer and show you in his steadfast love that never fails. The Greek word in the New Testament is charis, and it's used 154 times in the New Testament, not quite as often as chesed in the Old Testament. And almost all of them, not every single one of them, but the vast majority of them refer to that Old Testament truth that God is loyal to us, and God gives us goodness and grace, especially when we don't deserve it. And so the New Testament word charis pulls the grace of God into our lives as followers of Jesus. So John starts out in John chapter 1, and he says, Jesus is full of grace and truth. He later on says that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. And then in verse 16 of John 1, John says that from Christ's fullness, from really the fullness of Christ's grace, from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. And there's this continuing snowballing sense to that sentence. We receive grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Jesus, full of grace, bestowing upon us grace upon grace, is the fullest expression that we know of the steadfast, unmerited, undeserved love and kindness and loyalty of God towards us. Perhaps because of his own story, the Apostle Paul utterly and clearly grasped the grace of God towards us in Christ Jesus. 
The Apostle Paul elaborates on this undeserved grace of God in, in lots of places. It's in Romans 5 and 6, Titus 3. The whole book of Galatians is this theme about God has given you grace, but why would you, why would you kind of reject it and try to go back to your good deeds? But listen um, to especially how Paul talks about grace in Ephesians 1 and 2. In Ephesians 1, he speaks of the riches of God's grace, and he urges us to praise God's glorious grace. But particularly, this is Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes, You were all dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The bad news is this. Every single one of us is broken and bent. We have rebelled against God. We have demanded our way. Every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And but for God's grace, we would still all be spiritually dead in our sins. And that's how Paul continues. He says, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Think about that. Think about that. All of us have defied God. All of us have been broken. We've missed the mark. And God didn't owe us anything. He could have kicked us to the curb. God could have written us off as failures. God could have judged us as insufficient and inadequate posers. But instead, God, rich in mercy, out of the immeasurable riches of his grace, sent us Jesus, second person of the Trinity, to give his life for us, to die on the cross as our substitute, to restore us to wholeness and purpose and friendship with our God who created us and loved us. And we didn't deserve it one bit. Not a one of us deserved it in any way. But our God, the creator of the universe, poured out his grace towards us so that we might be able to live grace-saturated lives with the grace, expressing the grace to others that he has so lavished upon us. Cornerstone Church, true Christianity is grace-saturated because God is the God of all grace. Isn't it kind of surprising how much we resist God's grace? Our arrogance and our pride wants to think that we can do it on our own. We're self-sufficient. We don't want the humility that comes with 
receiving God's undeserved grace. Our merit and our entitlement thinks that we're good enough to deserve what we want. Our perfectionism betrays that we depend more on our self-improvement than we depend on the riches of God's grace. Our constant striving reveals that we think that if we just try harder, that will be enough. We think that we will be enough because we don't trust that God's grace is enough. Our neglect of Sabbath rest, interestingly, shows that we trust in our work ethic, we listen more to the expectations of the culture and the people around us than we trust in the riches of God's grace, that we can stop and God will still bless us. Our judgmentalism is convinced that people deserve exactly what they get, damn it. But remember the pattern of the boomerang. And our lack of repentance thinks that our lack of grace towards ourselves, because that's the worst place it gets expressed. Our lack of, we think our lack of grace towards ourselves and then towards others is not a serious sin problem. And then our anger and our bitterness refuses to give grace to people who have hurt us or disappointed us. When we resist the riches of God's grace, we're doomed to live in our inadequacy, in our insufficiency, in our critical, judgmental spirits towards ourselves and towards each other. And we miss the glory of the life that we saw in Bonnie that was fully saturated with grace. So time and time again, the scriptures encourage us to grow in grace. 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2.1, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So now you can pull out your three by five cards again and take a look at your answers. And I'm going to give you two minutes to share your answers with God, who is the God of all grace. Just be still and ask what God would like you to do in response to the immeasurable riches of his grace towards you. And so just invite God to impress a thought upon you, give you an image or a picture or a sense of what he would like you to do in response to his grace. I'll give you two minutes, I'll keep track of time so you don't have to worry, and then we'll come back and we'll, I'll give you an application for the message. So reflect now with the Lord for the next two minutes.
Amen. So would I ask God what he wanted me to do in response to his grace? And I've been able to think about this for the last two weeks because I knew this message was coming. And so about a week and a half ago, as I was just, just, just kind of soaking in the magnificence, the, the incredible nature of God's grace that he loves me absolutely completely, even though I'm a screw up, right? At my worst, he loves me more than I can imagine. Um, as I was thinking, I said, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? And I sensed him to direct me to open my eyes to notice his grace around me every single day. And I was amazed at the grace of God that I saw displayed every single day this last week. Every single day, I saw people that I didn't know, just beautiful, beautiful people, everyone unique and everyone different and everyone a reflection in some way of the image of God. As I passed people on the street, I would just look at them and look at their faces and I'd wonder, what was the story of God's grace in their life? And I couldn't help but notice the marvelous grace of God in the mosaic glory of human beings. This week, I was walking by a, a, a schoolyard, and the kids were out for recess. And I heard like this raucous, unrestrained laughter of probably 50 or 100, um, probably junior high um, age kids. I didn't deserve to have that lift up my heart with joy. I didn't earn that. But I saw God's grace poured out towards me as I noticed the delight in the children. Have you noticed the fall colors? This week I came across this tree that represented for me God's artistic handiwork. And the pick on the right, oh, it doesn't really show up very well. But that's the tree on the left, and then I zoomed in on the right because I was amazed at the color palette that God used because that was only that way one day, all right? God painted that that morning, and it was going, he was going to paint it differently the next morning. And I felt like God just wanted me to see the beauty of his handiwork as a gift to uplift my spirit. Um, I wasn't expecting it. But this last week, a number of friends checked in on me and shared that they were praying for me. And I didn't do anything. I didn't reach out to any of them. But God wanted to express his grace towards me. And so he just had three friends just tap me on the shoulder. Hey, praying for you. Are you doing okay? I, very honestly, folks, I do not deserve the sweetness of my family. A number of you know that a couple weeks ago, um, I had a trip of a lifetime with my oldest daughter, Christine, the one who was nine years old at the wedding, okay? She's 36 now, and we had a week together in New York City, an entire week of dad-daughter dates. Went to three Broadway shows, went to the Met, walked all over the city, did food tours, and talked and talked and talked and shared our lives as father and daughter, 66 years old and 36 years old, with a sweetness that I think I'm going to remember for all eternity. I don't deserve that. This week, um, our son's birthday was last Sunday. And so we do this thing as a family for everybody's birthday. We do a, a, now it's a Zoom call, and we get together and we express what we appreciate and affirm in each other. So all of us were there. I have two sons-in-laws, which by the way, I didn't, I don't deserve such incredible sons. The guys that married my daughters are, are 
men that I respect to no end. I didn't deserve that, but God gave me two more sons who married my daughters. And so we went around the circle and we talked about Daniel and what we appreciated about him. And it was such a sweet evening. I thought, I don't deserve that. I didn't earn that. I'm not good enough. That is a gift from our gracious God. And the list goes on and on and on. Um, I did a justice conference this last week with three dedicated cornerstone people. And we had conversations about how do we make the world a better place by doing some of the hard work. Um, I had this last week some deep conversations. A gracious afternoon with a missionary. Um, I met with two different lead pastors separately, and we just shared how we were doing. And then I saw just rays of sunshine, I, you know, the fog over the city. Um, I saw a rainbow this last week. I saw a cardinal, which some of you know is a sign to me of God's love. I was in Sunday worship with another church, and I just rejoiced in, in being with a different group of people that are praising God the same way we do here at Cornerstone. And I had the wisdom of meeting with my, my life coach. All of that work was expressions of God's grace. So here's your homework for this week. And to prepare us for the next two messages. Open your eyes every day and try to see the grace of God poured out to you. You don't have to give yourself any grace. You don't have to give anybody else any grace. That'll be future weeks. I, maybe you could, okay? That'll be future weeks. This week, would you just soak in the riches of God's grace because I pray that we will at Cornerstone have a renewed vision of the Christian life where grace isn't an afterthought grace isn't just something that happened to us when we got saved but grace is woven into all of our relationships and then we take that grace to our world to our schools to our classrooms to our to our neighborhoods we take that kind of grace and the world sees God in a different way because we've started to live grace-saturated lives. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. Great is thy faithfulness. Amen.